Hello, I'm Eddie Pepitone, and you're listening to NewDissidentRadio.com, which means you've been had, idiot. (laughs) Hello, this is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream. Sometimes it's music, strange mathematics, rhythmic equations. The sound of thought is enlightenment. Enlightenment. The magic light of tomorrow. Tomorrow. Backwards. Backwards. Others of sadness. Others of sadness. Forward and onward. Forward and onward. Others of gladness. Others of gladness. Enlightenment is my tomorrow. My tomorrow. It has no planes of sorrow. you to be in my space in today. That was Enlightenment by Travis Shook and the Club Wow. Chandler Travis, Steve Shook used to open for my dad way back in the day when I was not even 10 years old. (laughs) It's very exciting uh, here at Waking from the American Dream and New Dissident Radio. We have a new radio station. I'm in a room somewhere in North Hollywood by myself. It's a little scary, but uh, here I am. I'm running the station right now. Uh, I'm sure someone should be calling the FCC. I mean, I know we're on the internet and the FCC doesn't control things, but there's a Carlin at the helm, so things things could go wrong any minute now. I hope you guys, uh, Fourth of July was great. Uh, Typical of my uh, Fourth of July was um, lots of fun. With friends and hot dogs and and drinking and uh, potato chips, I think we had. Uh, But no fireworks this year. Uh, The county of Los Angeles, who runs the Marina del Rey fireworks, uh, did not have enough money for them this year. So (laughs) there was a little parade in our neighborhood. It's a really corny parade, and it's, it's very square. And there's a lot of more conservative types, not conservative, conservative, but, you know, just a little more straight kind of moderate Republican kind of types in our neighborhood. I live in Westchester by LAX. Um, And so there was, you know, a lot of private schools and parochial kind of schools that had little floats and the local politicians. And I I think next year I really want to have a float that's like the pro-gay marriage, medical marijuana atheist float or something just to see how tolerant these people are of the people that live in their neighborhood with them could be interesting what else is going on uh the world is going on but i've been so busy i oh well (laughs) there's only really one story right that's going on right now that fucking casey anthony thing i've not been paying attention for two years and now suddenly i have to know all about this because there's no other news story going on apparently uh, so yeah, that's, that's been fun the last few days. And, uh, my just a little update on my live show, Carlin Home Companion going really well, had a great, 
thing. I did a, I did a performance of it last week. It went really, really well. Uh, so that's marching forward t- towards Montreal. Montreal's coming up. Just to let you know, this is going to be my last show for a month. Next week I'm traveling. The week after I'm doing my live show in town here in L.A. And then the two weeks after that I'll be up in Montreal in Canada at the Just for Laughs Festival. My show's at the, on the 28th at 4 p.m. in Montreal. And then the evening of Saturday, July 30th, we are taping our two last episodes of season two of The Green Room. It's going to be amazing. So if you're in Montreal and want to come experience that, uh, send me uh, an email at wfadradio at gmail.com. And uh, I'll get you on the list because I know people. Uh, and speaking of The Green Room, it premieres next week, next Thursday on the 14th on Showtime. The lineups this year, go on, go Google it, go see the lineups that are on for this year. It's epic, epic people we have on together. It's very exciting. But I'm actually most excited because I have someone with me today who uh, has not been on The Green Room yet, but we're going to work that out. Uh, my guest today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> My guest today is uh, sitting uh, in a, in an actual green room, which is funny <laughs> that we were just talking about that. And uh, he is uh, in New York City, sitting in a green room. Hold on, I'm just going to adjust his mic here a little bit. Uh, and uh, there's really no need to introduce this man, although I have this, I have this, I have this encyclopedic long bio of this man uh you know 15 random details it's more like 300 random details about john fugel saying based on facebook yeah (laughs) but of course you know john uh, he's on the stephanie miller show he's actually touring with her and hal sparks right now for the sexy liberal tour you've seen him on politically incorrect he was on vh1 for years he's you've seen him as an actor and everything from csi to coyote Ugly! Wow, <laughs> yeah. that's the fast. Of my misspent youth. Oh my god, that's so cool! Uh, and of <laughs> that's course, cool. it is. It is totally cool. It's a great. It's a great credit to have. And of course, you know John uh, mostly from well, not mostly, but from Facebook and Twitter because you know you are considered John the king of Twitter these days. I am, huh? Wow. Yeah. Well, I, I, I guess so. My Twitter is having a better career than me. I was on the New York Times last week, and I was my Twitter was on uh, Good Day LA today. So, See? Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that my Twitter will let me open for it on the road sometime. <laughs> it's so weird. I'm uh, tomorrow doing an interview for the Just for Laughs Festival on Twitter, and then next week I'm doing an interview for their big newspaper there in Montreal. And I just love how these things are given equal weight these days because they really are equal. It's amazing. Well, I'm, it's really interesting seeing the effect that social media has had on comedy. You know, we used to try out jokes in a club, and if they worked well, we would try them on the radio or TV. Now everyone tries jokes out on the Internet, and if it works out well, we'll do it in a club. And uh, it, it really is changing. It's also changing the way comedians write, I think, because Twitter has forced a lot of people who used to speak in paragraphs to start speaking in concise <laughs> little sentences. You know, it is very true. And for me, in my evolution as a humorist type person, uh, I when I first was on Facebook and then certainly on Twitter, I was very nervous and shy about kind of putting out jokes or one-liners. And now my brain kind of writes for it it really That's does great, yeah. yeah and it's cool and i've really found that like oh i i see i actually could do stand-up because i've been doing stand-up now for a year and a half on twitter well it's really actually it's really really true and and uh you know i've gotten people that would i, I could never get a meeting with who now follow me on twitter so it's really funny and you know it's the funny thing is when you come home and you see that you have like 800 new followers in one day and you realize oh someone very famous must have liked the joke and retweeted it yes so it's uh it, it is peculiar but I, i've grown to really like it although I never got nervous about putting jokes on Twitter. I get nervous about putting like facts about me on Twitter or Facebook. I really don't understand these people who really want you to know what they had for breakfast and what they thought of Transformers 3 when they saw it last night with their old high school girlfriend. It's like... I'm not as interesting as these people. I don't assume anyone's going to care about my mundane uh, opinions about nonsense. And it's really amazing. Like the internet has just shown that the the self-absorbed people in high school are much worse now. (laughs) 
Now I got a chat on Facebook. With Facebook having Skype chat. I know. It's like, now, now I can see all the people who hated me in high school. <laughs> Sounds great. Sign me up. And it's like I already don't have enough time for all of this, and now I'm going to be chatting. I mean, that's on Facebook. I just shut down all the chat stuff. I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I'm can. invisible you, you out there. It. Yeah, it's yeah. It's crazy. It's, I, I don't. I don't have like the the, the cute girls uh, talking to me when I open up that chat window. It's always the demented guys <laughs> who like are wearing trench coats and screaming about socialism through a surgical mask. Yes. Or, 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 and, uh, you know, who want to talk to me and say, hey, hi, what's up? Nothing. Go go away. And, and I don't do well on the Facebook chat. I, I really don't. I, I get the guys who beat me up in high school saying, remember when we were friends in high school? And I'm like, no, you shoved my face into a locker and had me sodomize a parking meter outside the gym. No, I don't remember being friends. If that's your definition of friend, well, I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, right. In certain clubs, that costs extra, but yeah. <laughs> So uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about music, because uh, one of the things I love about actually speaking of social media that you do on Facebook is you share a a couple of different things with people. And uh, we'll get to your photography in a little while, but you you'll share your you'll share music or something that, you know, inspires you or a a clip of something. And uh, uh, Paul Myers, who's I'm friends with now on Twitter, uh, is, you know, a big, he's a rock journalist and he writes a lot mm-hmm. about his stuff. And he was mentioning that uh, today is Ringo Starr's birthday. Yeah, 71. Amazing. Mm-hmm. God, it just blows me away how old we're all getting. I know. The first time I saw him perform live on one of his solo tours, he was like still in his 40s. And it's amazing to think that like, you know, I mean, Dylan just turned 71 last last two, last month, and he's doing 100 shows a year. God, yeah. And my dad, I mean, he, when he, he was 70, he was still doing 100 shows a year. I, I just, well, yeah, and that's why your dad, to me, is like really a, an inspiration, because I, I saw your dad play, oh God, over a dozen times uh, in, in so many different states. And, you know, to me, it's like, it's like, well, what do you want to be doing when you're 70? Mm-hmm. You know, do you want to still be creating and be dynamic? I mean, when I meet people who are 70 and do local community theater, I think that's awesome. Yep. Martin Scorsese's movie uh, about the Rolling Stones, Shine a Light, the documentary, it might not have been the greatest concert movie ever made, but it's the best film ever made about aging on your own terms. It's, an, it's a fascinating movie to watch. That These guys who combined are 692 years old, and they are doing what they love with their time left on Earth, and it's, uh, it's a, a great movie for just that reason. So, yeah, I think Ringo's awesome, and, and, I, and I think you know, I'd like to see him book some cooler uh, some cooler tours with the all-star band. You know, when, when that first all-star band began, he had Dr. John and Clarence Clemens and mm. Mills Lofgren and Billy Preston. Mm. He had Joe Walsh. He had Rick Danko and Levon Helm from the band. And within a few years, he was having like Richard Marks and Peter Frampton's guitar tech, you know? <laughs> so I, 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 I'd like to see Ringo step up his game a little bit with the yep. cast on those tours. But, uh, you know, what Ringo's done is really, really great um, uh, because what he does is he takes a lot of guys who could not sell out venues on their own. He'll get, like, Burton Cummings from the Guess Who. He'll get, you know, Randy Bachman. He'll get Peter Frampton. He'll, mm-hmm. he'll get, uh, he'll get um, oh, God, some of the, uh, the guys from the band. And he'll get these guys, and they'll go play 5,000-seat rooms together. Wow, wow. And it's, what he's doing is, like, I think he deserves a space in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because he's really, you know, you can make your cynical jokes about geezers, and I think that ageism is pretty disgusting generally. But uh, what Ringo really does that I respect is he gets lots of cool guys that we grew up listening to, and they get to go out and play and jam together. You get to see a band full of cool artists you grew up listening to, and you get to see them working as a band. And um, yeah, I have a lot of respect for Ringo. Yeah, and, and there, you know, there's, there is something about watching uh, anyone, a musician, uh, a writer, whoever it is, who's been doing their craft for 30, 40, 50 years. Right. Uh, yeah. There's, there, you're looking at a maestro is what you're looking at. Uh, and it's, it, you know, I remember seeing um, Bob Dylan uh, when I was pretty, it was probably about 25 years ago and then saw him about five years ago. And just, you know, it's like these people live and breathe this. This is who they are. And, uh, you know, when you, when you get to go... <clears throat> Oh, I saw I saw Neil Young too about ten years ago. Even ten years ago, Neil Young. I mean, it was like this man was his instrument. I don't know if I don't think he was playing the instrument. I think like the instrument and he were playing each other. Yeah, he's a very underrated guitar player. Oh, oh my God, it was it was just magnificent. And and so I have so much respect, you know. And, and yeah, it's like you kind of. I mean, when my husband Bob and I we went to see uh, 
Bruce Springsteen a couple of years ago. Now, Bob's a huge Springsteen fan. I, I, I didn't actually really connect with his stuff too much until, until I met Bob. And Bob had never seen him live, so I took him to see him. And it was the year that Springsteen was turning 60. And, mm. and so everyone was kind of, we, you know, we were kind of, and literally the audience too. Like if you turn around and look at the audience, it's like, it's the graying old, you know, aging audience. And, yeah. and, and you're like, my God, this guy's been doing this for so long, but these people are, I mean, it's, there's no need for actual communication on stage because they are just so connected with each other and the music. It, it was spectacular to see. Well, yeah, and you know we we see that a lot in in comedy when you talk about improv. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, improv is like jazz. There are no wrong notes in jazz. If someone plays a wrong note, the other guys make the note work. Right. There's a great story uh, back in '99. Dylan, I, now I've seen Bob Dylan over 50 times live, and uh, you know, I, you you pointed out in your nice intro that I was a VH1 uh, VJ for a while back when that channel was run by people who could still spell the word music. <laughs> And um, so I got to meet a lot of musical idols of mine and really live in the music world for a, a good long while. And, and there's this great story. Uh, in 99, Dylan was touring with Paul Simon. And uh, one night they were backstage and uh, before the show, and Paul Simon says to Dylan, why do we still do this, man? I mean, we're getting old now, and we're going to be turning 60. Why, why are we still doing this? And Dylan turned to him and just said, it's what we do. Mm. And, you know, I think Bob Dylan wants to die on the road. I think he wants to be an old black blues singer. Mm. And uh, I think mm. he's going to do it. I think he's going to play till he dies. The guy does 100 shows a year. Wow. And listen, if you, if you want to hear a greatest hit to jukebox, let me recommend Rod Stewart. I hear he's great. If you want to see a guy who's been called a god by gods, if you want to see a guy who's there's no compliment he hasn't received, no honor he hasn't been worthy of, I mean, it's impossible to impress Bob Dylan. And, and the guy is going out there every night trying to alienate his fans trying to just destroy what your expectations are going to be and to find a sound and hit a groove and do something he's never done before. Wow. It's always an experimental show, and, and it, it rubs a lot of people the wrong way. And I go to Dylan shows, and it's a lot like going to see a George Carlin show in Las Vegas. You know, I used to always go to see – every time I was in Vegas, I would go to see, I would go to see your dad just, just to see how many walkouts I'd uh, see in the first 20 minutes. It was classic, yeah. But it's fantastic. And with a Bob show, you see these people walking out, and it's like, well, yeah, something's happening here, and you don't know what it is, Mr. Jones. But they're still mad he went electric. Uh, right? I know, right? <laughs> And, and I'm going to keep on going to see Bob as long as I can because, you know, yeah, he sounds like a kazoo with its legs stuck in a trap, but I think his voice is beautiful. And if you listen to the bootlegs, I just got a bootleg of his show in China, oh. uh, which Maureen wow. Dowd ignorantly slammed uh, without knowing anything about it. Um, but uh, he's, he's singing beautifully, mm. and it helps to know the words. It helps to know the more recent songs. Um, if not, you're going to have a, a tougher time, I will admit that. But He's a great singer. You know, people who think Dylan's a crappy singer, I, I guess they think Michael Bolton's a good singer. I don't know. But, you know, get your head out of a box and, and, uh, and open up to what art can be. What, what was your very first single that you bought as a kid? It was Imagine by John Lennon. and oh, wow. uh, But I only got it, like, years after John Lennon died. Um, I, I, I got it when I was a little kid, and I heard it in the Killing Fields. And I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know that it, I didn't even know it was John Lennon when I first heard it. Mm. Uh, I just, it's the closing theme in the Killing Fields. And um, my dad was a history teacher. And so uh, there wasn't a lot that I could bond with him on in terms of like sports or anything. But, uh-huh. uh, but that was a film that I knew he would love. And, and so uh, I went to Sam Goody and I bought the 45 of, of Imagines. And John had been dead for like four years already when I did it. But that was the first, uh, the first 45 I ever bought. Wow. That's a, that's quite a, an amazing Connect. I mean, first of all, just to, for the killing fields, that part of it, and then to buy yeah, it's, that. Play, it's played in the last scene of that movie. And, yeah, uh, it's, what a it's powerful. very beautiful. Yeah, wow, that's that's great. And, and what was yours? Um, I bought the Love Train by the OJ's. Great song, beautiful. <laughs> that song is so great today. Uh, it's just good now. No, you think you think about disco and just like how how disco as an art form just kind of like merged into part electronica, part contemporary urban dance. But OJ's is like pure soul, pure funk, pure disco. Yep. And yep. that song, that song sounds like a prayer today. And yeah, then, truly, truly. I mean, if you listen every, to the words, everything it's religion, everything religion claims to be, you'll get in that song. <laughs> exactly. I remember being a kid, and my dad would get uh, the Billboard magazine to, you know, uh, mailed to our house every week. And so I think it was, I started about 11 years old, I guess it was, it was like 1974. And, you know, we'd watch my dad's albums on the chart and we'd always chart them out and all that kind of stuff. But I'd always look at the pop charts to try to figure out what kind of music I wanted to go and, and like explore and listen to. And that's how I started discovering music. And I remember uh, some of the hits I bought were um, 
Spiders and Snakes uh, by uh, some country guy. Wow, I don't know that one. Yeah, oh, I'll have to remember the, the guy's name. Uh, but Rock On was another one, which is just an incredible, so before its time kind of song. And then, and then of course, my dad had this amazing vinyl collection, which I have today. Wow. A- and he would say to me, you know, I'm collecting these for you. This is actually your collection. And I would be able to take... The Beatles, and I remember a lot of it was the Beatles. I would take Sgt. Pepper or Abbey Road into my room, and I had my own record player, and uh, just put on the headsets and get to listen to uh, to the Beatles and, like, you know, memorize every single word and every single song. Wow. Uh, yeah. We could not have had more different childhoods because, for <laughs> me, it, you know, maybe Mana La Mancha was about as hip as it got with my parents' <laughs> musical collection, and, which is pretty damn hip, by the way. It's a great musical, but my parents uh, – did not did not live like regular people, and so I, I I never listened to pop music until I was in my late teens. Well, and and just to fill in some of my listeners who don't know about your parents and their background a little bit, uh, both of your parents had come from uh, being a part of the church, actually. Yes, they were Catholic clergy. Yeah, actual <laughs> Catholic clergy. So they had very little exposure to pop culture until I'm guessing they left the church. Well, exactly. My mother was a nun. And uh, she grew up in the South and, um, and then became a nun, and they put her through nursing school and sent her off to work uh, with lepers in Africa. My father was a Franciscan brother. He taught um, Catholic boys history in Brooklyn and wore the Jedi robes and the rope belt and uh, looked like the lost Jedi Knight of Flatbush. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, my, so my parents both, you know, entered in the 50s, and they didn't live like normal people again until the 70s. Wow. But their fashion taste and cultural taste had very much stayed in the 50s. <laughs> So, uh, you know, plaid checkered pants and the buzz haircut and the, uh, and the Clark Kent glass. My, my first grade class picture looks like 27 little Almond Brothers and Buddy Holly's inbred cousin. Um, <laughs> I did not, did not blend. Believe me, Kelly Carlin, the only true nonconformist is the accidental kind. I have the scars to prove it. Oh. So, yeah, I couldn't really afford the therapy I needed, so stand-up seemed like an affordable alternative. Uh, yes, absolutely. When, uh, how old were you when you started doing stand-up? Uh, I was, oh Lord, I was in my early twenties. Mm. Um, I was in my early twenties when I started, I, I had always wanted to do it and, uh, I had always been afraid to do it. And so I finally one day just, uh, planned to do an open mic and I invited everybody I knew and like 25 people showed up so I couldn't back out. Uh. Um, the catch was once the club realized that there was 25 people there on an open mic night just to see me, uh, they kept pushing me back and back and back because they didn't want all my people leaving. So I didn't <laughs> go on stage until like 1130 at night on a Tuesday. Wow. Um, my, my aunts and uncles were passing out in the audience, but, uh, but once I got on, I was already a diva because I was like, all right, you guys made me wait this long. Fuck all y'all. I'm doing 25 minutes. And I did. I did 25 minutes at an open mic my first time on stage wow. because I'd, I'd filled the house. I didn't care. Right. And I knew it. And I was so angry. And uh, it was crazy. David Tell and Mark Marin and Dave Chappelle, like these guys are all there at the open mic the first night I went up. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. I, I followed the guy with cerebral palsy, of course. Um, <laughs> that was yeah, it's okay to stare at me. Everyone does. That was the guy I had to follow. So, uh, <laughs> oh wow! And so, how? So, what year was that? That was back in 1993. Wow, 93. Yeah. And I was an actor, you know. I didn't think I would stick with it, and then it wound up being a lot of fun. Mm. And you know, and then stand-up has been something that hasn't always been my home. I've, I've gotten away from it for years. I, I took a break for a while because I wanted to really get serious about doing solo theater and have a one-man show off Broadway. And mm. so I stopped for a few years and worked on developing that. And it was great. I, I was an art, artist in residence at Dartmouth University, and I, mm. I had an off-Broadway run. I got a drama league nomination. Mm. Um, lost to that hack, Lee F. Schreiber. But uh, <laughs> but then getting back into it afterwards was just more fun than ever. And, and this year. Uh, I'm spending my whole year on the road between doing um, the tour that I'm on, uh, which is a political comedy tour, and then military shows. So uh, this has been the first year I think I've had ever where I'm just like doing nothing but stand-up, and uh, it's it's more fun now than it's ever been. Oh, that's 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 great. And and is there um, in your own stand-up? Like I know obviously a lot of people know about your political stand-up because you articulate. I mean, you're just really, John. I have to say, you're one of those people that can so articulate what needs to be said, like what we all are thinking and don't know how to put together. Um, Wow. Coming from you, that means something. Thank you. Well, I I steal most of my stuff from like Jeff Foxworthy tapes. So I'm I'm deeply honored. (laughs) And Gallagher's newest stuff. I just go in with a tape recorder and just, you know, 
but did you always do political stuff? Is that what you started with? Uh, I always wanted to, and it's because of your father. Hmm. Um, it, it's because of the Jammin' in New York tour in 1990. Uh, yeah. um, you know, uh, my my parents, you know, my dad was, uh, like I said, he was a, a Franciscan, um, and those guys are uh, people I have a lot of respect for. He was a very spiritual guy who believed God is love. He was very conservative as a dad. You know, we weren't allowed to have long hair, and he was a high school principal, so he tended to treat his, his students like they were his kids and his kids like they were his students. But um, my dad used to say, there's two things God can't do. He can't stop loving you, and he can't stop forgiving you. Hmm. And that was kind of all the religion I ever really needed. And my father was uh, a, a deep liberal. When I was a kid, he pulled me out of bed late one night to watch Jimmy Carter sign the Camp David Peace Accord between uh, Israel and Egypt. He wow. couldn't believe an American helped bring peace to one corner of the Middle East mm. and wanted his kid there to witness it. And wow. to me, as like a six-year-old, that was just, you know, where I learned all about what America and what religion could and should be, a Christian bringing a Muslim and Jew together to, to stop killing each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, whatever you think of Jimmy Carter, I mean, it's, I think it's a great moment in human history in Absolutely. the last 50 years. So you said, when I when the Gulf War happened back in eighty nine ninety I was I was pretty disgusted I was with the seven percent of Americans who didn't really approve of that uh, I thought we were going to war to put the dictator of Kuwait back in place Kuwait was a country that really wasn't a country it was a family owned corporation with its own flag where women are legal property and people have their hands chopped off and uh, you know without rehashing all the history I I mean we had armed Saddam Hussein. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we had made the guy, and when he gassed his own people, they weren't really his own people, they were the Kurds, yep. uh, you know, it was the Democratic Party that tried to condemn him, and the Reagan White House wouldn't, and, you know, there were so many reasons why that war was really dirty and really suspicious to me, and I didn't hear my point of view anywhere. I heard a bunch of, like, you know, miserable liberal leftists at a couple of sparsely attended peace rallies and a couple of sad sacks on TV, but generally, you know, the Persian Gulf War was the feel-good war to end all feel-good wars. And, and it was on all the cable. Well, it was on. It was on. It was on cable. So it was. Yeah, it was, it was the, the entertainment. It was the entertainment of of the time. I mean, it was fascinating. Yeah, and yeah. I was only tw- I was only twenty years old, and and I was I had just finished college. I I got out early, and and I was I was working a job running a dorm for NYU, and and you know my friends were all like, hey man, we're going to see George Carlin at Long Island uh, Westbury Music Fair. Come with us. And I like George Carlin. I, I loved his HBO specials. But I was like, well, all right, I'll come. Sure. I was you know down. And your dad comes on stage, and he opened, he opened with the routine about the Persian Gulf War. Yep. And uh, where he, he folded in, he artfully folded in a lot of his older routines about how bombs were all shaped like dicks and stuff like that. <laughs> yes. Um, but he, your father came on stage and made me feel less alone in the world. Mm. And um, that's, that's what theater is supposed to do. That's what art's supposed to do. It's supposed to make you feel recognized. It's supposed yeah. to make you feel like you're, you're not crazy and that you, you have been hurt and... and, and and we're not alone. And, and I just wanted to do for people what your dad did for me. And I can honestly say that, you know, one night seeing your dad live just changed my life and changed mm. the direction of my life. Wow. And uh, so that's why, you know, and, and again, politics was something that I could always talk about with my dad. And it was a way of, you know, getting right. close to my dad. Right. So uh, and I always had a fierce sense of social justice. And I always really take it personally when people use Christianity as cover for being a douchebag. Um, <laughs> Jesus God, was a noted non-douchebag. Jesus is the most progressive liberal guy in, in history or in literature, whether you believe in him or not. And uh, so I, I, I realized that, you know, there wasn't anybody espousing my point of view anywhere in the media of uh, people who, you know, didn't hate religion um, and, and were flaming leftists or progressives or whatever you want to call it. And so, uh, you know, Billy Wilder always said, if you're going to tell people the truth, make it funny or they'll kill you. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's sort of been a, a maxim of mine. And, and uh, I'd rather be, I'd rather be, you know, funny and preachy than just preachy. You make people pay attention more. So it's really a device. And uh, if people laugh a lot, then that's just a beautiful side effect. Uh, and, you know, since you're out there a lot on those stages and you've been in New York for the last couple of years, have you felt like a temperature change out out there in the audiences with your stuff? Do you? Well, yes and no. It's interesting because, um, you know, by and large, Americans don't pay attention to what's going on. They just don't. And they're happy that way. And that's how the upper two percent wants it. But uh, Americans work long hours at their shitty jobs, and they get home on a Friday, and they want to go out to a comedy club. They want to laugh. They want to hear dirty jokes. They don't want to think. Mm. And so, you know, you get a lot farther with uh, a really clever point of view and a dick joke than you do with just a really clever point of view. Yeah. And so, you know, and I respect that. I mean, people come to be entertained. I'm not here to be enlightened or to, you know, get off on my own uh, 
my own self self perception of, of how smart I am. I right. mean, uh, people people come to be entertained, and I want to be an entertainer. And and so, you know, it's interesting because I've begun doing military shows for the first time, and I the crowds are great. Like mm. they they always say no politics. And uh, no cursing. And I get up there, and the first thing I always do is, well, the commanding officer told me no politics and no cursing. And they all stand up and go, fuck that, fuck that, man. We're here fighting for your fucking freedom of speech, and they say that you can't exercise your fucking freedom of speech. Fuck that bullshit, man. And, and so, you know, they're, they're, they're great crowds. And then it's like, I'll tell you the one rule I've learned of political comedy. You know, uh, it helps to make fun of both sides. Yes. And thank God the Democrats make it really easy to make fun of both sides. <laughs> And and after uh, 9-11, I spent the year on the road with Daryl Hammond, who's a great guy and a really terrific stand-up. If, if, if your listeners have never seen Daryl live and they only know him as the guy who does the voices on SNL, uh, they're being cheated because he's, he's a wonderful live performer. Yeah, I don't know him at all, his, his live stuff. He's so funny. It's scary. And his, he, you know, he does a lot of the impressions, too, and it's like uh-huh. he channels these people. It's eerie. But, you know, like Daryl and I went out after 9-11 for a year, and he wanted me to go out there and be Lenny Bruce. He said, go on out and... He said, push the envelope and take on Bush. And, and uh, it was sort of like the reverse of what your dad would do with his opening act, mm-hmm. um, where your dad would always have an opener who'd come out and do very family-friendly mainstream. Yeah, Dennis Blair for years. Yeah, come I, out and do I musical comedy. Yeah, yeah. Really funny, but Dennis would do cute little song parodies, and then yep. George would come out and spit bile. <laughs> uh, we did the reverse, and Daryl would have me come out and spit bile, and I'd get like people you know, throwing beer bottles at me, and then he'd come out and win them back with impressions. <laughs> I love that. I always said it's the exact opposite, but I learned something very important. If you make fun of Democrats first, you'll do fine. Yes. You have to make fun of Democrats first because Fascinating. liberals can take a joke better. That's one thing I'll say for them. They, they really can take a joke. And yeah. conservatives, conservative folks don't like, uh, you know, coastal uh, liberal elitists making fun of them for a very good reason. Coastal liberal elitists do make fun of them. And they think that, <laughs> you know, true. conservative Midwestern and Southern folks are hicks and that they're dumb because they have accents. And yep. it's not very liberal and it's disgusting. Yep. And they don't want to feel singled out. So it's like, I learned, you come out, you make fun of Democrats, they know you're not singling them out for scorn, and then make all the Bush and Cheney and Boehner jokes you want. Mm-hmm. And that way, you know, you, your crowd knows. I mean, right now I'm doing mostly these liberal shows. I'm, I'm backstage now at Laughing Liberally Off-Broadway, and I'm doing the Stephanie Miller Sexy Liberal Tour. So those crowds... They want to hear a one-sided act, but I, I don't care. I give it to the Democrats plenty because I think it's healthy, and I think that you know, blind obedience to one party did not serve our Republican friends very well at all. Well, and it, it doesn't serve uh, you know, that crazy thing we should be doing called thinking. Right. Uh, y- yeah. You know, it's uh, one of my favorite things about having a form now like, like, like this show and, and in other places is I love to find that angle where no one else is coming from just to like bring a little expansion or light into people's thinking. So mm-hmm. they go, Oh, wow. Yeah. I've never actually thought about it that way. And, and, and like one of the things I'm having fun with my solo show that I'm creating is bringing that kind of an angle to my family story. I mean, everyone has, a projection and an idea of who my father right. was based on his stage persona. And yet my father was a complicated human being. And so it's really fun to tell these stories where this whole other layer of my dad shows up. And, and sometimes it's like, you know, okay, ooh, maybe not the, the, the prettiest layer, but then there's these other layers, which are really beautiful and poignant and deep, but it's a full spectrum. And, and I, I just, mm-hmm. I think it's really important that we all learn as humans to use the full spectrum of our, of our point of view of our consciousness. I had a guy on, um, was it, I think it was, no, it was last week. His name's Carter Phipps. He's an executive editor of a uh, magazine called enlightened next. And we were talking about the importance of the integral perspective, which is a perspective that is willing to take on any other worldview in order to stand in the shoes of other people to try to really understand where they're coming from and, yeah. what, and what their values are. And, and I feel like in this... And this is something that liberals are really guilty of not doing. Well, well, yes, because, I mean, even even though progressive liberals, you know, and the word progressive is this kind of progressive thinking, and it's, it's past traditional thinking, and it's even, you know, past modern thinking, but it is. It's still saying my way or the highway. Exactly. There's the, you, you know, it, it's, you, it's, it's not to be an oxymoron, but you can be a, a, a liberal fundamentalist. I mean, the problem yes. isn't isn't ideology. The problem's tribalism. Yes. And I know lots of people who are really progressive and they, they, they really want a better world and they want equality and they, and they, they really want, uh, you know, marriage equality. They want justice for all. And then, you know, 
then we'll see John McCain run and we'll hear all the fucking age jokes. Right, right. I mean, so like, oh, okay, a liberal, so ageism, that's allowed. We can make fun of people for their age. Okay. And then you'll hear, and then you'll have a lot of uh, my, relig- my, my, uh, my liberal friends who just, you know, go off on religion. Yes. Because they're sure. all stupid and they're all superstitious. And it's like, dude, you know what? It's, it, I have this debate all the time. It's like people confuse fundamentalism with yes. all religion. Yes. You know, the, the peaceful, moderate or, or progressive Christians, Jews and Muslims aren't the one causing the problems. It's the <laughs> fundamentalist douchebags yeah. that always cause the problems for the rest of us. And, and it's, it's like it's the fundamentalist period that always caused the problems. Always. Historically, the more conservative any religion is, the more hateful it is to women and gay people. That's across the boards. The more conservative any religion is, the more it fucks with women and, and, and always has been. And, and, and really, you know, things get done somewhere in the middle that, you know, middle can become this thing where we think is, is muddled or it's muddy or people are compromising because they're moderates. But actually that is where the conversation happens. And if you look at even just a personal healthy psyche of any individual person, you know, I think the more mature you get and the more uh, of a whole personality you get is when you're willing to take all of the extreme positions inside of you and say, you know what, these aren't, these aren't making me saner and these aren't making my life easier. Mm-hmm. They're actually making my life and everyone around me like more difficult, yeah. uh, you know, by listening to the, you know, the, the extreme narcissist part of us or, you know, the part of us that's demanding or willing, whatever it is, or even the, the codependent part of us. Absolutely. Look, everyone's crazy. Everyone's screwed up. Your, your, your birth certificate is proof of damaged goods, as I like to say. <laughs> you know, that's the receipt that says it came out broken. So you're not getting... <laughs> That's great. No one gets out of childhood unfucked up. That's how it is. It's an imperfect world, and that's the beauty of it. Yeah. Like, you know, I just I just was asked to go uh, to go do a, a a thing for the New York Atheist Society, and I was thrilled. I'll play, you know, I, I like it. I play military shows. I'll play anybody who wants me to come. I, I do religious shows. If Republicans ever ask me to come down, I would do it, man. I I think Republicans and 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 uh, Democrats and you know conservatives need to learn to uh, and liberals need to work together more. Yep. So I go to this atheist show, and I'm like, you guys know I'm a I'm a believer, right? I mean. I'm, right. I'm, I'm not. I'm very pro Jesus. I'm not very pro his fan clubs, but I, <laughs> I, I you know, I, I think that uh, Jesus is the biggest lefty that ever lived. And I'm like, just do your act. And I came and I did my act. And and when it was done, we had a Q and A, and it was fascinating because um, at the end of the Q and A, like I, I just said, look, man, I think it's great that you guys have your thing. Uh, but there are definitely fundamental fundamentalist atheists. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, oh, yeah. at, at one point someone said, well, well you know, if you believe uh, if, atheist, if atheism is your belief and some guy just yelled, atheism's not a belief, it's a conclusion. Right. And I said, and that's not a that's not an opinion. It's a talking point. And I said, you know, <laughs> you know, and I Bill Maher and I have this fight all the time. I'm like, stop confusing Jesus and God with their crazy fucked up fan clubs. Yeah. Because um, you know what, I hate to say it, but some of the best people I've ever met in my life have been religious people and conservative uh, religious people. You'll find that conservative Christians can often be a lot more liberal with kindness than a bunch of liberals at a cocktail party in the Upper East Side who can be snobs. That's interesting. Yeah. But I said, I said to the atheists, I was like, look, man, you guys want to be taken seriously. You want to be put on the same level as religion. Then stop fighting religion and start working with religion. Stand for something besides standing against something. What do you care about, atheists? You're secular, secular humanists. You care about the homeless. Then Make a fucking coalition with churches and synagogues and mosques right. to help the homeless. Right. Get out there and stand side by side with these people because that's how you're viewed as an equal when you work with them. Otherwise, you're on the sidelines calling them losers and nerds. And they totally applauded. You know, wow. the atheists got it. Wow, and it's yeah. like, I'd love to see, the, you know, an atheist and, and, uh, and, and religious uh, coalition to, to fight for social justice and progress and take care of people instead of just fucking fighting each other, which is all the upper 2% like wants us to do anyway. Well, you know, and it's really interesting because when Obama first came into office, there was a couple of times where he was using language around this topic and he was, he was trying to be as inclusive as possible. And, and he, I don't know if he used the word non-believers or atheists or something like that, but he was, he was really trying to spread this definition, you know, that people yeah. who are concerned about society and culture, you know, come in many different shapes and sizes and let's, let's all have a conversation. And, you know, in my point of view with all of and this. And then of course they scared him out of that too. Of course. I mean, yes. You know, you because they, they second, always do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You said a second ago about how, you know, it's good to meet in the middle sometime. And I completely agree. The problem is Democrats are the ones who are always moving where yep. the middle is. Yep. I and they're always very happy to move where the, you know, the middle now is not where the middle was in the seventies. It's very, very, very true. And, uh, 
you know, I think my position on all of this is like, look, you can have, you can believe in anything you want. If you want to believe that the pine tree outside your house is your higher power, then go for it. As long as you're not a pushing your beliefs on anyone else, certainly not in a violent or, you know, coercive way. And and if your beliefs don't, you know, affect uh, the people around you in a negative way, go do whatever you want. You know, believing is not the problem. It's, it's, it's how you impose your beliefs on other people in the culture who, uh, you know, might have a different opinion. I mean, that that's, you know, my husband and I, we talk a lot about Afghanistan and I really think we should get out of there. And he's really, really worried about what's going to happen, like how the Taliban's going to come in and it's just going to go back again, you know, a thousand years into this tribal culture where women are treated you know, below property, basically. Mm-hmm. And I say, oh, to, yeah. you know, when I say to and, myself... And boys, too. Afghanistan is the is the uh, pedophilia capital of Asia. Wow. The culture of the Bakabas, where it's freaked our young troops out, but where these men have these young boys as lovers. PBS did a great documentary on it. And it's even though even though Islam forbids homo, uh, homosexuality, they don't view it as being gay because it's not love. It's just for pleasure. Women are for procreation. Right. So, you know, it's a third world mentality where boys are raped. And by the way, not all that dissimilar from the Roman Empire back then. <laughs> And it's like, you know, yeah. so we're fighting, we're fighting for a bunch of woman-hating boy rapists? It, that's, that's what we're fighting for here? I know. And it's, it's very confusing, you know, as, as a person who's like, you know, I don't believe in nation. I, I don't see how us being there is helping. And I really think, it, you know, that we, we had a chance, you know, right after 9-11, if we'd focused on Afghanistan, maybe we would have made a difference. But, you know, it's like, and so, you know, and I think... But the like mud- in terms of what? Like, it, it, to, me, it, to me, Afghanistan's about supply and demand, you know? And it's like, who's going to run this thing now? Let yes. me give you a point. Let me give you an example. Um, we purchase all of our opium uh, for our pharmaceuticals that Rush Limbaugh likes so much from, uh, <laughs> I think, from mostly from New Zealand and Thailand. Um, now, when George Bush was president in May of 2001, a few more short months before 9-11, George Bush gave the Taliban uh, $35 million to thank them for eradicating all the, op- all the poppy, you know, right. poppy fields to right. get rid of all the opium, so, right. you know, drying up the heroin supply for Europe. Right. Well, look what happened. Uh, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's what got us into bed with Saddam Hussein and the yep. Taliban in the first place. Yep. So now the Taliban's gone. The opium's back. You can buy heroin all over Europe again. Right. Um, but like what I haven't heard put forth was, look, we're going to be making this anyway. Why don't we let capitalism solve the problem? Why don't we let the farmers grow the opium and we buy it, right. put it into our pharmaceuticals, and let the free market pave the roads and create cities and create jobs in Afghanistan. Right. We're growing this stuff anyway in other parts of the world. Why are we shooting people for trying to grow it there? Our troops talk all the time about going to see these plants, and they try to pick them before they come. They're going to grow this stuff. The climate's right for it. It's going to happen no matter what. And, yep. you know, if, if God didn't like um, poppy fields, he really wouldn't be growing so much of the stuff anyway. It, <laughs> it's nature. And we use the stuff in our drugs anyway. Yep. So I'm like, why don't we just let them grow it and then let capitalism put the Taliban out of business because these people don't want to not grow it. The Taliban forced them not to, and it costs them their livelihoods. We can win hearts and minds by letting them make a buck. Yep. That's, wow. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those elegant, simple solutions that politicians will never use. Of course, because politicians are terrified to appear pro-drug, and yet... You know, in reality, I mean, look at marijuana. Uh, legalized marijuana is technically the conservative point of view. It's only been illegal for seventy odd years. Yep, it's 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 it is mind boggling when you when you start getting on either side of these issues, and when you really cut it all down, it's like, but but this is actually something like you know, this is something you should actually be in favor of because if you're saying you want government out of everything, then why mm-hmm. is government in my bong? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, why is it in my classroom, in my bedroom, and in, in my the vagina? Uterine? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, but it goes right back to you know. Look, it's like the problem with the modern Republican Party is they don't believe in anything. They're good at two things: redistribution of wealth to the upper two percent, and convincing nice conservative folks that this is a good thing. Yeah. Look at the health care law. I mean, we should have we should have had a public option in this country, and it should have been the Republicans fighting for it. The Republicans should have delivered it because so... if you don't want to save American lives, you're not a patriot. And if you don't want to heal the sick, you're not a Christian. And if you're afraid of competition from cheaper Canadian drugs or a public option, then you're not a capitalist. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, they lose on their own terms. Have you ever thought about running for office? 
Uh, no, never, never, never. It will never happen. It would be so fabulous. Even uh, if we could would, do just like a little, yeah, if we could even do like a little Stephen Colbert thing with you, just kind of like, you know, make a little, you know, so, because we need someone speaking the talking points out there. You know, that's what I love about Colbert and the super pack he's doing, you know? Oh yeah. It's, yeah, definitely. It's, it's like using, using the pulpit just to, you know, to make people like really get like, Oh, yeah. Logic is being used right now. Not just logic, but satire, a favorite topic of discussion with you and me. Yes. You know, Colbert is really one of the only non-animated satires on American TV. We we confuse parody and satire quite a bit, but Colbert is like an object lesson every night in what satire is. He's always defending his targets. And the greatest proof of these satire is when you hear these stories about conservatives who watch a show and and they think he's a real guy and really believes all these things. You know, if you attack your if you attack your targets, that's that's propaganda or it's or it's uh, parody. Yeah. The Daily Show is great, but the Daily Show is a parody of a newscast. Absolutely, yes. Colbert is not. You know, SNL gets called a uh, satire, and it's very, very rarely ever satirical. Mr. Show is satire. Yes. Uh, South Park is satire. A lot of The Simpsons and a lot of Adult Swim animation, but uh, Colbert is pure, the pure real deal. But I, I could never run for office because. Um, you know, every time someone asks Bill Maher that, he has a stock line. He always says, "He says I can't run for office. I think drugs are good and religion's bad." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, seriously, like on, on my views on the death penalty alone, I, I I would be unelectable. I mean, your dad always had a line where he said, uh, "This country was founded by slave owners who wanted to be free." Uh, <laughs> I, I always say you can only be president if you're a follower of Jesus who believes in killing sinners. <laughs> It's so true. Uh, yeah. It's there's something about the cognitive the daily cognitive dissonance that uh, you know, I just wonder like when America's head is going to finally explode because oh, it's not just America, it's humans, it's it people, is, you know, it is. and it's, and life is so much more interesting than they teach us and so much more complicated and beautiful and wonderful than they teach us and it's also really fucked up and and people yeah. get scared and they cling to very 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 simple narrow beliefs and it's like Sometimes being nudged out of your comfort zone can be the most wonderful thing for you. But again, I was forced to be this way. If I had been popular, I'd be a stupid, happy douchebag right now. (laughs) Oh, I just don't think that's true, Mr. (laughs) Fugelsang. Remember, the only only true nonconformists are the uh, involuntary ones. (laughs) So true. Well, we have to end today. Uh, you have to go do a show. Uh, Mr. Fugelsang's really literally sitting in a green room. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm doing about, an off-Broadway show. It's uh, Laughing Liberally in New York. And who's, on, who's, on, the, who's on with you tonight? Uh, tonight I'm on with Jim David. Who's a, tonight's a celebration of marriage equality in New York. We didn't get to this or, or, or Casey Anthony, the most important uh, story of all time. <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a show to celebrate marriage equality becoming the uh, law here in New York. And it's okay. who's on tonight? Uh, myself, uh, Dean Obadala, who's a great um, Muslim comic. Baratunde Thurston, who's one of the editors of The Onion. Oh, I know. Yeah, tell say hello. He's a, he and I are Twitter friends. Oh, absolutely. He's a very funny guy. He's and, great. Um, and uh, a few more comics as well. Nagin Farsad, who's a hilarious Muslim uh, woman comic. Oh, I know and, her. Uh, yeah, say hello to her also. Yeah, I met her through Lee Camp. Yeah, she's great. Oh, yeah. And Lee Camp's on the show tonight as well. Oh, give um, Lee a big kiss for gay marriage for me. I certainly will. And, and then uh, <laughs> we're off to Tucson for the Stephanie Miller Sexy Liberal show this weekend because we wanted to go to Tucson in the month that everyone leaves Tucson. So, uh, <laughs> yes, it'll be so lovely out. No, I know. 113 <laughs> degrees with two mile wide dirt clouds. Don't yeah, touch anything. Wait. Just don't touch anything outside. It's I, very I, hot. No. I, I, I don't plan on going outside. I will catch flame immediately. But uh, And then the Stephanie Miller Sexy Liberal Tour with her and me and Hal Sparks is uh, really going well. We're selling out dates months in advance. I love it. Which is happening much in comedy. And Yay. We're going to be uh, coming to a town near you. So please, you can check out sexyliberal.com or go to the Facebook or Twitter pages to find out all of our dates because uh, that show is a riot. It's completely offensive and shocking and decent people should never to see it. Excellent. I like that. No decent people allowed. Exactly. There ought to be a law. I actually want to pay that. I would like to pay the Tea Party to come picket our shows so the major media will cover us. That's my goal. Um, maybe if we have people wearing tea bags on their heads outside, MSNBC will pay attention to us. There you go. <laughs> Man. Wow. All right, darling. Well, you have a great night. It was great talking to you. We miss you. We can't wait for you to come back to L.A. and and maybe I'll be back in New York this fall. And I'd uh, love to. And uh, beha- on behalf of all your listeners, we're so glad you're doing this show, Kelly. It's really oh, a pleasure to be on it with you. Thank you, sweetie, so much. And have a Thank great you. night. And we'll uh, we'll talk soon. Peace. Bye bye. All right. 
Okay, that was Mr. Fugel saying, uh, fabulous, John. Love him so much. So we're going to end uh, the show now, and thank you all for being here. Thanks for all the live listeners today. I really appreciate it when you show up. Love having live listeners. Uh, I'm not going to be here for a full four weeks, so catch me in August 11th is when I will be back. Um, thank you, everyone. Thank you to Barbara Roman. Thank you to Paul Provenza, who's just been doing so much for me lately. God bless you, Mr. Provenza. Uh, thanks to Johnny Dam here and my husband, Bob, and everyone on Twitter and Facebook. Love you guys. Love my friends and family. I'm going to close the show with more Travis Shook and the Club Wow with a little song called Like It If It Be That Way. Foolish things may get tossed around Till right side up to upside down But that's okay I think that it's fair to sail all in a great day Loving whomever we choose Proves that nobody has to be sad I would like it if it be that way Nobody has to be sad I would like it if it be that way, like it if it be that way, like it if it be that way. Stars are gone and your dream is complete, wake up.